Please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing and have people sing in our presence, singing of your glorious nature and the things that you have done. Thank you for the gift of music. We thank you, Father, now that we can continue to worship you in meditating upon your word. Direct our thoughts and every element of the remainder of this service. We pray that those that know Jesus as their Savior would rejoice and know you more intimately. And those who do not know you as their Savior, that even during this time, as your word and your spirit do their work. We pray, Father, that you might bring about repentance and faith, perfect, eternal life granted. We, we commit this time to you for your working and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the expressions thrown around at this time of year is the season of giving. A quick Google search reveals how prevalent the expression is. Now, you're not going to be able to see all of them. Just know that almost every one of those little thumbnails is a picture that says the season of giving is uh, two pages worth. And I just stopped there. I didn't figure uh, two, two of those little segments was enough. This is uh, year-end giving and Christmas giving. And there's Giving Tuesday. You've undoubtedly been a part of some of that. I know I have been part of that. I like to give, don't you? There's something that is special about giving, giving to individuals, giving to causes, giving to the Lord. There's something special about that. This pleasure that we experience in giving is related to our being made, created in the image of God because He is the giver. He is the giver. We cannot outgive God and we cannot match God's giving. Here's a, just a little sampling of texts to help us understand God's nature as giver. In James chapter 1, verse 17, every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is a giver. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus is speaking, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And then, a wonderful passage in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, in just verse 32, God says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up or delivered Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? Just a small sampling of how the Bible speaks of our God as a giver. His gifts are good gifts. 
His gifts are glorious gifts. His gifts are perfect gifts. Some of the gifts that God gives are temporary. They're temporal. The gift of a great day. The gift of the scene you behold when the sun is setting. The gift of a sweet, refreshing meal with a loved one. The gift of a job. The gift of a home. The gift of a vacation. And many, many more. These are some of the enjoyable, temporary gifts that God gives to us. But God more importantly, also gives gifts that endure past this week and this year and past our earthly pilgrimage. As we consider our God as giver this morning, we want to see how His gift of sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, results in the gifts of redemption and adoption. Redemption and adoption. These are gifts that keep on giving. You think about all the things you're going to give in the next week. Maybe you've already given a number of gifts. And all the gifts that you're going to give later this week. And all the gifts you're going to receive this week. And maybe you have already received. All of those things are wonderful. And you're thankful Unless you've got an ugly sweater. Um, all of those things are great. But none of them will last beyond this life. Not for you. Not for you. You can't take it with you. But the gifts that God gives, the ones that we're speaking about this morning, redemption and adoption, are eternal. Take a look, please, with me at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 1. We read this already. We'll read it again. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit, excuse me, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God has placed His people, had placed His people under the tutelage, the tutorial ministry of the law of Moses. The law demonstrates a standard of holiness. The law, as stated by Paul elsewhere, reveals our sinfulness. The law provides a distinction between God's people and the rest of society. And the law demonstrates something 
of the character of God. Now it's, it's important because we talk about the fulfilling of the law regularly. We talk about the fact that we're not under the law but under grace regularly. These things come up in our studies and it's, it's good and important. It's a truth. It's important that we understand what that means. God did not destroy the law by sending His Son. Rather than destroying and setting aside the law through His Son's presence, the Lord Jesus completely observed the law. He fulfilled the law. The demands of the law were satisfied in the life of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's exactly what He did from the moment of His birth until He was crucified on the cross. The Lord Jesus was fully obedient to the law of God. He was fully obedient to the law of man. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. He died the just for the unjust. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. He fully obeyed God and the law. He fulfilled the law. Having fulfilled the law, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to remove the law's eternal demands. Now this is what's interesting about the law. We've talked about it. I will reiterate it. The law demands until you're no longer around. You could be obedient for 24 hours a day and 7 days a week for 78 years. Now you wouldn't do that and you couldn't do that and you haven't done that. But let's just in this theory say 78 years of full obedience 24 hours a day for 78 years, and in year 79, you sinned. The law gives you no credit for those 78 years. The law says you sinned, and you're guilty of all of it, and you're worthy of condemnation. This is the law. The law is an entity. The law is a standard. It demands, demands, demands. The Lord Jesus fulfilled every demand of the law unto crucifixion until God attributed to Him my sin and the sin of the world to Jesus. Until then, He never violated the law until God charged Him with sin He did not commit. The law was completed. It was fulfilled. It was satisfied. And this is the glory of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, being made flesh and dwelling among us. He lived a life that substitutes for the life that I live. He fulfilled the law's demands. And so here we are in Galatians chapter 4. And we want to recognize this, that God gives 
the gift of redemption. God gives the gift of redemption. Take a look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem is the Greek term exagorazo. It means to, by payment of a price, to recover from the power of another. By the payment of a price, to recover from the power of another. Another definition of it is to ransom. Jesus came. God the Son came at just the right time in the flesh under the law. And he did this to remove the power of the law as demanding over us and condemning of us. How did he do this? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed. That's another term. It's not the exact same term, but it's a similar term to redeem. To redeem. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was through the payment of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we were set free, set free, the power is removed, set free from the tutelage of the law. Now this is not a perfect analogy, so bear with me, and, and there might be some details that are not quite exactly right. Um, Dave will correct me later. But consider that you've gone to school to be an accountant. You take the classes, you write the papers, you do the projects, you take the tests. Upon graduation, you have a certificate that says that you know how to perform accounting tasks. You then take your internships and you pass the CPA exams and you become a certified public accountant. I think that that's fairly accurate, what I've just conveyed. You are no longer subject to your professor's syllabi. Why? You graduated. You have the certificate. And now you have another certificate certifying that you're a certified public accountant. So there are two ways that you can go from there. You can move forward in your accounting career saying, I have my diploma, I have my certification, now I will not apply any, any of the principles that I have been taught, I'll wing it. Or you can apply the formulas you've learned and apply the processes you were taught into real life. One of these ways forward will enable you to meet the needs of clients and bosses and enable you to be a valuable asset to your company whereas the other will cause you to be unemployable as an accountant. Oh, you don't have the professor over you telling you yes, 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 no, 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 any longer. You've graduated. You have your certificate. But, but you know what? You still have to apply what you learned. This is what the law is for. The law, when being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't mean it has no application to us any longer. There may be some elements of the law that are less 
um, applicable. If you think about you know, mixed garments, <laughs> do I have only cotton on, or do I have some cotton and some linen and some uh, some polyester? I don't want to mix because that would be against the law. We're not talking about that kind of law. I don't have to bring a lamb to church any longer. No sacrifices. That's all uh, established. You, you may there are some some areas of question, right, where you know. The, the Bible tells us not to have tattoos in the Old Testament, and it tells us not to burn our bones. Should I be cremated? Should I get a tattoo? Is, is tat getting a tattoo sinful? Is, is being cremated a horrendous sin against the Lord? Those are areas for question. But I can tell you there are many, many of the commands in Scripture, while fulfilled and obeyed by the Lord Jesus Christ and attributed to the account of the believer, they're still responsible to, to live in accordance with. God used the law to teach us. It is no longer our taskmaster. Instead, it's a faithful counselor teaching us how to navigate through life. The Lord Jesus, in many ways, talked about the law, and he generally expanded the law. Remember, you say that you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, and it's true. But I want to tell you something what the law really means. It means not to look upon a woman who lusts after her. That's called an expansion of the law. He took the law principle and said, this, this invades your life far more than you think. Uh, we have this passage in the book of Matthew, chapter 5 and verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, stop right there. The Old Testament said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember that one? So if someone slugs you, slug them back. Well, Jesus is letting us know that's not really the whole story. There's more to this. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Oh, listen, this one's a little swollen now. Can you match it up on this side for me? I don't know how many of us are going to go and follow that uh, particularly. The Lord Jesus is giving us something to consider. We have been redeemed from the law, but it's not as if it no longer applies. The law has been fulfilled in Christ. When we are redeemed, his fulfilling of the law is credited to us. This is the glory of the gospel. The law, listen, the law cannot condemn a believer. The law holds no power of condemnation over the person that has turned to Jesus Christ because the law for me has been fulfilled in Christ. He did it in my stead. This is the necessity of Jesus coming in the flesh and living. See, the gospel requires us to understand that the life of Christ was necessary for the gospel to be applied to me. Jesus lived in accordance to God's perfect plan and lived in the way that I do not to provide for me the righteousness that I do not have of my own. Many elements of the law are still essential to our lives. So here we are. We're talking about the fact that Jesus came, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So I have... The certificate that says, I cannot be condemned. But that does not mean I can now covet without conscience or murder without consequence. The application 
of the law in my life is not fear-based, but it is for fruitful navigation through life. This is a tremendous gift. The commandments, rather than being a burden, are my desire. So let's think of it this way. We're going to set the scenario for just a moment. We're going to read a small text, and we're going to move on from this point. If you and I thought, in order to please God, in order to have a right standing before Him, in order to make it into heaven, I have to obey these laws. There'd be this tremendous pressure and crushing burden coming down upon us to wonder, did I do enough? Did I obey enough? Did I make the grade? Will I enter into God's presence forever cleared? That's the ha what happens when the, the law is the standard, is am I measuring up to the law? And this is what he says in verses 8 and 9 of this text. Look down at verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You want to place yourself under a burden that never is fulfilled. But Jesus came to redeem you from that pressure. He came to remove that condemnation. Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior have been set free from the burden of the law. Instead, as I've already said, the commandments of God serve as a faithful counselor to point us in the right direction. The commandments, even in the life of the Christian, do not produce righteousness. Righteousness is only produced by the Spirit of God in our lives. So I, I question for all of us, have you been set free from the condemnation which the law threatens? If you have been, you have received a precious gift from God. He came to remove the law's condemnation from us or over us. Related to this gift is another gift that Galatians 4 adds, and that is God gives the gift of adoption. God gives the gift of adoption. Take a look again at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his son in order to make us sons. God sent his son in order to make us sons. Now this gift is a gift with many layers. It's like one of those gifts, now I'm trivializing it. I don't intend to do this. Like I don't intend to trivialize it. It's like one of those gifts that has um, a big box and there's something in there, but there's another box inside. So you've got a gift in that layer, but there's another box, and it has a gift in it. And you open that one, but there, you get that gift, and then there's another gift inside. You open that box, and then, and then you've got that, the, the final gift. There are 
three gifts in one. Well, there are at least three gifts that come as a result of God giving us the gift of adoption. And this text talks about these three. Again, there are more gifts that would be included, but these are the three that are included in this text. First of all, intimacy. The gift of intimacy. He gives us adoption as sons. Now, you're in Galatians. I want you to take a right, just one book, and head over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, for a moment. Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1, also speaks about adoption and this intimacy. And I want for us to understand, it is important for us to understand, that this is not just random chance. Being adopted by God is not a result of random chance. Rather, God planned before the world was formed to adopt me into his family. I didn't woo him with my good looks, my intellect, or my good behavior. He set his love on me. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God has demonstrated that He had a design and a plan to adopt a person like me. He wanted to bring me into an intimate relationship with Himself as my Father, me as His Son. What what is it that demonstrates whether or not I have been adopted into God's intimate family? Well, there are lots of answers uh, or lots of verses that would apply, but one speaks very clearly about it. In John chapter 1 and verse 12 is that verse. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to, what does it say? Become children of God. This is the way you know whether you've been adopted is that you've trusted Jesus Christ. You've believed in who He is. God made flesh. God and man in one. He fully obeyed the law. He laid His life down as a wrath-removing sacrifice for my sin. He was buried in the third day he rose again, triumphant over sin, triumphant over Satan, triumphant over death. God's plan fulfilled. Believe in his name. The name is representative of everything he is. You believe everything the Bible reveals about Jesus. You've believed on his name. You've become a son. God has adopted you into his family. And it's an intimate relationship. The second gift that is related to adoption, back in Galatians chapter 4, 
is presence. Presence. Look at verse 6, please. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, where? Into our hearts. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So God has made it so that His presence is with us. As part of this adoption, God has given us the gift of His Spirit. Now, we don't have time to develop all of this, but a number of observations for you on the screens. The Spirit, who dwells in us, that are believers, serves as a guarantee of our eternal salvation. The Spirit teaches us as we read the Word of God. The Spirit empowers us to obey the Word of God. The Spirit produces faithful demonstrations of God's character. And the Spirit is God's continual presence. You'll remember that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Remember that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Spirit. And He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, or even to the end of the world. So no matter where you are and at what time it is, Jesus would be present with us. Well, how did he fulfill that? God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. God says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. What shall I fear? How, what can man do to me? God gives us these glorious gifts of His Spirit dwelling within us. But most particular to this passage, the Spirit cries out through us and bears witness to us the fact that God is our Father. The Spirit that God has placed into us cries out from us and bears witness through us that God is our Father. This text says it in verse 6. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And it is even further clarified in Romans chapter 8 in verses 15 and 16. Listen to what God's Word says there. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is a glorious result of God's giving of His Son. He came to redeem us from under the curse of the law and to send into our hearts the Spirit of God because we've been adopted into the family, adopted as sons. And God's Spirit cries out from us, God, I know you're my Father. I know I can come to you. I know you'll hear me. I know you're with me. I know you've given me what I need. These are gifts that endure. A third element that we recognize from this passage that is the benefit of adoption is our inheritance. 
our inheritance. Look at verse 7, please. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an, what does it say? Heir through God. You're an heir. We have become heirs of God. Oh, what does that mean? Well, I think if you, if you just try to, try to common sense it for a moment, you're an heir of God. What does he own? <laughs> what does God own? Why? Because he made it. <laughs> and he's God. When you're a son of God, you become an heir of God, which means your inheritance is, is not measurable. It's not measurable. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs, or joint heirs, with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Oh, what does the son receive as an inheritance? Psalm 2 gives us a little glimpse into that. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Hebrews answers it as well. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir, what does it say? Of all things. This, this is what we have become. When Jesus came to die for us, to redeem us from under the curse of the law, with that we became sons. And as sons, we have an intimate relationship with the Father. We have the divine presence within us. And we have this look down to the end. An inheritance that is immeasurable. Through becoming a son of God, we become eternally rich. When we talk about an eternal inheritance, we're speaking of things that cannot be taken away from us, that cannot be taxed, that cannot be abused, that cannot be extorted, that cannot be exhausted. They're incorruptible and unfading. Of all the gifts we've ever given or ever received on this earth, none of them will last eternally. But these gifts that we speak of in Galatians chapter 4 are eternal gifts. God gives the best gifts because he is the greatest giver. How do you receive these gifts from God? How do you receive these gifts from God? The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace, that's God's unmerited favor, you have been saved. What does it say? Through faith. And this, this salvation process or this faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do I do? Well, 
That was the exact question that the Philippian jailer asked to Paul when he was on the verge of killing himself because he knew his life would be taken. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said this. This is it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. It's true for you. It's true for your kids. It's true for your nephews. It's true for your aunties, your uncles, and your great-grandmother. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What that lets you know is the crushing demands of the law removed. A relationship with God enjoyed. Intimate, eternal, and beyond, beyond our comprehension as far as its value. This is what God gives to us. I say to you, with sincerity, trying to convey in the best possible way, Merry Christmas. We celebrate God's greatest gift. It's the gift of Jesus' arrival, but that's not the end of the gift. It was many days, 30-some years of life, a brutal substitutionary death, and a glorious resurrection. This is Merry Christmas. Have you received adoption as sons? Have you received redemption from God? Let's pray together. Father, we know what each one of us needs. We pray for those of us that know you. We would rejoice in your gifts and share them with others. And for those that do not know the Lord Jesus, we pray that even in this hour, you would do your work of bringing them into a relationship with you through him. In Jesus' name, amen.